so I'm feeling unsettled on the inside. One of the classic examples he gives is, let's say you're a smoker who no longer wants to smoke. Okay, so uh, you've, you've determined in your head that you no longer want to be a smoker. You're going to give up. You're going to quit. You decide this for sure. Three days later, you find yourself lighting up again. What do you do with that information? Uh, you have to deal with the unsettling nature of it. And you rationalize to yourself, well, it was a really bad week this week. Or, but this is the last time, for real this last time, starting now. Now I'm starting. You have to rationalize to soothe the unrest, the dissonance that exists inside of you. Uh, a more recent social psychologist by the name of Jonathan Haidt, who wrote one of the best books in my mind of the last decade called The Righteous Mind, uh, he said the ba same basic thing. He said, we like to think of ourselves as people who are what we are because of the choices that we make in our lives and what we choose to be. He says, the reality, however, is that it isn't our thoughts that make us who we are. It's our gut. It's our instincts. It's our heart. And it's our love. That drives us to where uh, we are. And then we just use our thoughts to rationalize all of the behaviors of how we got there. In other words, there's this dissonance. There's this guilt, uh, sometimes over our behavior. Uh, but when we actually uh, we use the rationalizations, we use them simply to explain uh, why we love what we love. The, lo the thought is not the driver. The gut is the driver. The thoughts are simply the rationalization. Now, I want to tell you, both of these guys, they're not Christians. But they have a common understanding of human nature. And that understanding is that every single human being internally has a moral code of right and wrong that all of us at some point in time fall short and break that moral code, and that we all have this pressing feeling of, he, you know, Festinger said dissonance, I'm going to call it guilt, of falling short of what we were supposed to be, what we wanted to be for ourselves. And we got to do something about that. Now, let me give you a more recent guy who actually is a Christian. I've referenced him before, and one of my favorite books of the last year was by a guy named James K.A. Smith called You Are What You Love. And he says the same basic thing. We're not primarily brains on a stick. We're not primarily thinking things and thinking creatures. Uh, we are the product of our loves, and we use our brain to rationalize our beliefs. And James Smith, actually, he's kind of a high church practitioner. And one of the things that he interestingly would say is one of the missteps of the American church in the past 50 to 100 years has been that it's largely gotten rid of the practice of confession and absolution. So if you go back to like the 1980s, uh, the, the church at the time was wondering how we would ever, uh, you know, there's, the membership is sort of waning a little bit. And how do we drum up more members? How do we drum up more people in our churches? Well, let's make the church more attractive to those who are unchurched. And so what they did is they started getting rid of all the things that unchurched people said they didn't like about the church. Well, they found a lot of people didn't like talking about our sinfulness. So they said, well, let's get rid of the confession and absolution component. This was in the 1980s. This was called the seeker-sensitive uh, or the, the seeker service, seeker sensitive service. And it is the basic template of really all uh, American megachurch that exists uh, today. No confession, absolution, or anything like that. James K.A. Smith would actually say, ooh, that was, that was the wrong way to go because not, all, not only do we all have a need for a confession, but we all want to confess. And you know where he turns as evidence of that? He actually, in his book, cites uh, a dialogue from a TV show. I didn't watch it, but it was a TV show uh, that I know was critically acclaimed, and it was about five years ago on HBO called True Detective. 
Some of you might have heard of this show before. It starred Matthew McConaughey and uh, Woody Harrelson, I think. And he quotes Matthew McConaughey's character on the show. Matthew McConaughey is not a Christian. Uh, in fact, he's, he's an agnostic and, and kind of hostile towards things like religion. Uh, but he goes on these lawn soliloquies throughout the course of the episodes, apparently. Go figure, Matthew McConaughey. Lawn soliloquy. And, uh, and he goes off on one episode, apparently, about confession. And here's what he says. He says, let me find it in my notes here. Look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They don't just know what it is, or they just don't know what it is. Everybody wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty, especially, and everybody's guilty. Oh, our PowerPoint's up and running now. Thank you. Let me read that again real, just at the end. Everybody wants to be some, part of some cathartic healing narrative, the guilty especially, and everybody's guilty. This is a non-Christian in a secular show saying this. Now, I'll tell you what. The brightest minds of the past 50 years in social sciences and Matthew McConaughey are all saying the same basic thing here. Human beings have something wrong on the inside of us and there is a quest to relieve that dissonance, to relieve that guilt. And in fact, our society has done us no favors by almost kind of defining away terms like sin so that they're not part of the vernacular anymore. And if you don't have terms like sin, then you don't have concepts like repentance and confession. And as far as other people's sins, if you don't ever define them and what they're doing as sin, you don't ever have the thing of uh, forgiving them. So what we have today is we have a lot of people with a tremendous amount of self-loathing who are falling into despair and they don't know what to do with it. And they have massive amounts of anger towards other people and we can't have any social dialogue and there's plenty of polarization because we don't know how to forgive anybody else. In other words, what the social scientists would say is the thing that's driving human behavior as much or more than anything else in the world is unresolved guilt. Which is exactly what the Bible says. Tonight, we're going to look at a character who failed at processing guilt more than anybody else, more famously, in human history. We're not looking so much at the story of Jesus be, uh, Judas betraying Jesus. Rather, it's once he recognizes his guilt, what does he do with it? Most of us are, to some extent, familiar with that story a little bit. And the story is Judas is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And uh, he gets trained and educated just like all the rest of them. And he gets sent on a mission just like all the rest of them. Judas has a sinful impulse, just like all the rest of them. He has a sinful pride. In his particular instance, it tends to manifest itself in terms of greed. But it wasn't just, and here's the thing that I need you to see tonight. Judas' problem is not primarily that he does a bad thing or he is a bad guy. Judas' biggest problem is not that he betrays Jesus, because what I'm going to try to convince you tonight is we're all guilty of that. Judas' biggest problem is after he recognizes his guilt, he doesn't know where to go with it. Uh, it's easy when you look through the story of Judas uh, to kind of paint him as this villain that is unrelatable to us. Uh, even almost every picture of Judas that you see throughout history, he's this devious, like clearly he's a villain. Uh, if you look at the picture here on the screen, right? Uh, clearly he's a bad guy. Just look at how awful he looks. Um, I don't think that's number one accurate and number two helpful. Why? Look at Judas' input and output. 
it's better than most of ours. Judas Christian input, Judas had better Christian education than all of us. Judas had a better small group than any one of us. Judas listened to better Christian preaching than any one of us. And his output was better too. Jesus actually commissioned Judas along with the 12 to do what? They went out teaching and preaching and healing people of their sicknesses and driving out demons. And Judas, so far as we can tell, did it with the exact same equivalent level of success that all of the other disciples did it. In other words, clearly the power of the Holy Spirit was resting upon his ministry just as much it was resting upon all the other disciples. What does that mean? Judas has as good of Christian input, as good of Christian output as we have. He's got a different issue. To characterize him and dismiss him simply as a bad guy and, oh, he's just a bad apple, does us no good. Furthermore, you might say, well, okay, maybe he's not an inherently worse guy than any one of us, but he did a really bad thing. That doesn't do it either. Some of you have heard me say before that the manifestations of our sinful pride are very often relative and circumstantial. What I mean by that is, for instance, I happen to be born and raised uh, into an intact Christian family. Uh, I got a great education, and I never had a single basic need of my life that was never met. I was never worried about that. So, when my sinful pride manifests itself, when it flares up, it tends to manifest itself in things like passive-aggressive snark and self-righteousness. You take my exact same spirit... And you plunk it down into, let's say, a young man that's born and raised in the 53206 zip code. And maybe his selfish, sinful pride manifests itself, is more inclined to manifest itself perhaps towards violence. Or some other, many of you know 53206 is the, the highest incarceration rate in the country, right? It might manifest itself in other ways that lead to incarceration. What's the point? The difference between the two of us internally is nothing at all. The difference in behavior, granted there's different consequences, it's circumstantial. It's relative. And so to say, well, Judas betrayed uh, Jesus and he did an awful thing, well, yeah, how does that make him any different than any one of us? In fact, one of the most beautiful ways this is ever portrayed is some of you have seen Rembrandt's painting before called The Raising of the Cross. You've seen this? where Rembrandt, Rembrandt actually paints himself into the portrait. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say every single one of us is equally responsible for raising the cross of Jesus Christ. Rembrandt, you, me, are all equally responsible for the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. None of us is any inherently different. Jesus had to die for every single one of us. See, the problem with Judas, the main problem, do not let yourself just dismiss him as a villain. It's not that he's inherently worse. It's not that he does a worse thing. The problem with Judas was where he failed to turn after he recognizes his own guilt. Um, in fact, the real problem with Judas uh, is best explained for me, anyways, by a Lutheran commentator by the name of Martin Franzman years ago. I talk a lot about idolatry, which I get from Tim Keller, but before I even heard it from Tim Keller, I heard it from a Lutheran theologian named Martin Franzman. Here's what he says. Franzman writes, To make this matter practical, we can point out that the fatal sin of Judas is repeated time and time again. Every person has a savior. Something that he thinks saves his life from nothingness. To many, such a savior is prestige and honor or pleasure or material possessions. But when these saviors forsake them, or they lose the health with which to enjoy them, they spend their last years in bitter frustration. Or they take to the rope or to the gun or to the 12th story window. 
The latter repeat the story of Judas, first a process of spiritual self-destruction and then the act of physical self-destruction, which proclaims with grisly eloquence, there is no hope, there is nothing but despair. You see, the problem with Judas is not that he's inherently bad or relatively worse. The problem with Judas is not simply that he has done a terrible thing. The problem with Judas is after he recognizes his guilt, he fails to turn to the only one that can do anything about it. Which is exactly why the Holy Spirit in the Gospels juxtaposes the stories of Peter with the story of Judas. You know how similar Peter and Judas actually are? If you've never noticed this in the Gospels, just take a look at why they're, they're positioned next to each other the way that they are. Both Peter and Judas had great Christian training. Both of them were equally called to be disciples. Both of them have this sinful pride. Both of them have these flare-ups of their sinful pride throughout their ministry. Both of them ultimately at the end betray and renounce Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Both of them are overwhelmed with guilt, seized with remorse, we're told. But what happens to Peter? Peter, after he does this, just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And, when, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. After Peter recognized his guilt, he saw Jesus face to face. But Judas? Judas also recognizes his guilt. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. Both of them were equally so sorry. But after Peter wept sorrowfully, he saw the face of Jesus. And three days later, he would see that Jesus resurrected from the grave. And he knew that no matter what he'd done, Jesus was bigger than any of the sins that he had committed. Judas, on the other hand, after he weeps in bitter guilt, he turns to his self-righteous Jewish leaders. And what do they say? Well, what's that to us? That's your problem. In other words, they turn him back to himself. The what must I do to be saved thing. And Peter, when he recognizes his sin, he weeps, but he turns to Jesus. But Judas when he weeps in, over his sins, he, he looks in the mirror and he doesn't recognize the monster and he doesn't know what to do with it, so he kills him. Every single one of us, at some point in time in life, is going to be seized with remorse. If you haven't experienced that yet in life, you simply have not lived long enough or you don't have enough Christian friends to help call you out on certain things that you're struggling with, perhaps. But every Christian at one point in time will be seized with remorse. And you'll do something that you wonder, how on earth am I capable of this? Who is this monster? And the only remedy at that point, there's no difference from one monster to the next. We all look the same in the mirror. The difference is where we direct our eyes afterwards. Can you look to Jesus who is bigger than all of your sins. My favorite story of all time of remedying this uh, whole situation 
this self-loathing, is a story. It's actually kind of a famous preacher story, so some of you might have heard it before, but it's by a woman who, uh, she wrote a book that it, it makes the Christianity Today's top 50 books of the past 20 years all the time. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker by Rebecca Pippert. And she tells the story of one time when she was speaking at a conference and a woman came up to her and she clearly had panic in her eyes. And uh, she said, can I speak with you? I need to speak with you. I'm desperate. And Rebecca Pippert said, okay, I'll, I'll see if I can find some space. And they find a quiet room and she goes back and the woman starts to unload. And she says, look, I belong to this really, really, really conservative church. And it, it turns out, she goes on, she explains that uh, th this is her and her husband were like this uh, young, attractive, really influential couple in their Christian congregation. They were leaders in that congregation. But about six months before they got married, uh, this woman discovered that she was pregnant with her boyfriend's child. And they, all they could think about was the scandal attached to this. What are people going to think? Uh, they looked at us as leaders. They're going to realize that we never actually practiced what we preached. Uh, it's going to be absolutely devastating. And so they made the decision together that they were going to have an abortion. Now, I understand that even like within this room, there might be a spectrum of, how I say this, probably levels of, uh, a spectrum of sympathy for women who find themselves in very difficult positions. But I think almost everybody here would, would really clearly agree. This woman did not want to do this, but she ended up doing it anyways. And so she, she knew she was doing something wrong, and most people would categorize it then as such. And um, she said that six months later, sure enough, she's going to get married. And her hair is all done up and looks great, and her makeup looks great, and her dress looks great. And she walks down the aisle that day and everybody's looking at her like she's some sort of beaming bride. And she said, on the inside, I could hear a voice calling me a hypocrite. I could hear this voice that just kept saying to me, you are so desperate for the approval of these people that you were willing to murder someone. And she said, that voice hasn't actually gone away. I've been running from it ever since, and I've confessed my sins thousands and thousands and thousands of times, but I can't get rid of it at all. She said, well, I know that God is supposed to have forgiven me. Maybe he forgives me, but I don't even honestly know if I can forgive myself, which is something I hear pretty often. And Rebecca Pippert at that time sort of takes it all in, takes a deep breath, says a little prayer, and she says to this woman, she says, my dear friend, Jesus came to die for the sins of the entire world. The sins of the really religious people and the sins of the irreligious people. The sins of the Nazis and the sins of their victims. The sins of the most moral people and the sins of the most immoral people. Uh, every single one of us is guilty of the worst sin imaginable. All of us is guilty of putting Jesus Christ on his cross. The sin that led to you destroying that life was pride. And the sin that led to Jesus' life getting destroyed 2,000 years ago at the cross was also pride. And if you know enough to know that Jesus already paid for that sin 2,000 years ago, then you'll know he can cover any sin. And the woman just sort of took it back and took it in. And she said, I actually came here to confess to you the worst thing that I had ever done. 
And you told me that I've actually done something worse than that. But I've actually always believed that he was capable of forgiving me for his own crucifixion, so it makes sense that he'd be capable of forgiving me for this too. And at that moment, she was freed. We've all done some terrible things. We would all be a lot healthier if we honestly confessed some of those things to another person. But you want to confess it to the right person because Judas also confessed his sins, but he confessed it to some self-righteous religious leaders who only directed him back to himself. You want to confess it to somebody who has the spirit of Jesus Christ inside of them who can point you to Jesus Christ's cross and prove to you and show you that you are in fact forgiven. Uh, it's, it's this amazing irony within the Christian faith that our sins led to the betrayal of Jesus and the shedding of Jesus' blood, but it's actually the shedding of Jesus' blood that is the very thing that we need in order to pay for all of our sins and gift to us his own righteousness. And it's furthermore amazing to me that Jesus doesn't just desire to forgive us of our sins and he doesn't just go to great lengths to forgive us of our sins, but he's actually desperate to make sure that you know that your sins are in fact forgiven. He takes his own blood. We're going to come to the table here tonight. He takes his own blood. He takes his own righteousness and he doesn't just credit it to your account, but he pours it down your throat so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that what he earned on the cross actually lives inside of you. That his innocence now belongs to you, that when God the Father looks at you, what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, that the righteousness of Christ, through the blood of Christ, lives inside of you, you you don't have an option. You have to stop beating yourself up over the mistakes that you've made. And you have to take all of that energy and just use it to praise Jesus for what he's done for you. Let's close with a prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, every one of us here tonight probably has something that we feel we need to confess. And as we come to your table and we are assured of that forgiveness of sins, what I'm asking that you, you do for us is you help every single one of us let something go that, we, that has been haunting us for, for perhaps years. Help us to let, us go, let it go, knowing that we are filled with your righteousness, that we are your perfect children through his blood, and let us use all of the energy that used to be so destructive And now let it be energy used to productively worship you. In your name we pray. Amen.